Let's just bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we pray that you would lift us up by your word. Lord, that it wouldn't be a trial to sit through this time, but a moment where we are brought into your presence. And Lord, we know that if we are in your presence, we can't go away without being changed. Change us, Lord, into the likeness of Christ, we pray, by your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, today we're going to be talking about some basic principles of spirituality. And we're going to start with the well-known idea that there are as many paths to God as there are people. Now, when undertaking spiritual practice, it is important to bear in mind that each individual is different, and so what works for one person might not work for another. For example, when you were climbing a mountain, each climber thinks that it's his way, that it's the only way. But when he reaches the top of the mountain, he realizes that there are an infinite number of ways that could have taken him to the top. Likewise, there are as many paths to God as there are people. If five patients go to a doctor and each was suffering from a different ailment, then giving all five the same medicine would not result in each of them being cured. So also, each of us are different, and hence the same spiritual practice cannot be recommended for all. In a spiritual context, each of us is unique across the following parameters. The five cosmic elements, earth, water, air and ether, the degree to which different aspects of spiritual practice have been completed in prior births. The different accumulated account, destiny and willful action that each one has. Rubbish! Now I bet you wondered where on earth I was going with that. Yeah? Your faces were beautiful. Please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Chapter 4, and we will begin reading in verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit In the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. In contrast to the philosophy that I began with, the inspired word of God that we know to be both infallible and sufficient says that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. So how many paths to God do you think there might be? That stuff I started off with about subtle basic elements and many paths to God, it comes from Hinduism. 
The confusing thing is it's only one of many alternatives in that faith because Hinduism is actually a kind of a a catch-all for a whole bunch of different laws and ideas about daily morality. It's a conglomeration of distinct intellectual or philosophical points of view, not a rigid common set of beliefs. It doesn't even have a single founder, and it is formed from a diversity of traditions. Depending on your sources, there could be between 33 and 330 million gods to worry about. I tried to get a grasp of what a basic believer might might hold on to, but I couldn't because it's too complicated and there are too many different answers. How on earth does that help you to know what is the right way to live and what is your hope for life after death? My intention is not to ridicule Hindus, but I do want to hold them up as an example of what happens when humans try to define their own morality. We just can't. I don't care what anyone says because no human unaided is able to define whether a particular viewpoint is an absolute truth. When we try to work out these fundamental things for ourselves, we just create an ever-increasingly complex and confusing mess of rules and opinions. We may think that as a species we are jolly clever, but we aren't actually that clever. Truth with a capital T Remains the, ex- remains the exclusive property of God with a capital G. In comparison, as we read here in Ephesians, Christians are blessed by a lack of choice. There is only one, one God everywhere and only one path to him. This means that in any circum- circumstance there isn't any confusion. A Christian knows what is the right thing to do. More importantly, we live with real hope. In fact, it's more than just a hope, isn't it? We live with the certainty of eternal life in heaven with a resurrected and perfect body based on salvation through Jesus Christ. I find it very worrying that consumerism, which is the modern world's God of buy, 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 oh yes, I love buying, is so focused on choice and the right to choose because it trains us to think that way and it drags us away from this beautiful truth. One of the first memories I have of coming to live in New Zealand was being taken to Countdown on the day we arrived in in Wanganui and wandering down the bread aisle with my mouth open like a loon. I was dazed by the variety there. You know, before we came here, we were happy to have any bread at all. Well, now we could have anything we liked. We didn't know where to start. We had so many choices that were much larger than our actual need. And this is why philosophies that focus on choice are so dangerous. When we have that possibility, we will always choose what we like, what tastes good, and which is the easiest. This might seem harmless, but that's its danger. It may start with something very simple like bread, and then when we have, we have become used to that, we believe that it's our right to have a choice in everything. And then we move into a much more dangerous place. I don't like my spouse? Well, I think I'll choose another one. Marriage makes that a bit more complicated? Okay, well, we'll just live together, so then I can just move on when I feel like it. 
Christianity has too many inconvenient truths? No worries. There are many paths to God. Oprah Winfrey says so. So I'll just choose one that suits me. Tell me, what sort of God would accept a creation that decided how and who their creator should be? Do you think that that God would be sovereign and omnipotent? And if they weren't those things, would they really have the power and the ability, the worthiness, if you like, to have our respect and obedience? Would they be able to hold out any real hope of positive intervention in our lives or guarantee a particular outcome for life after death? Of course not. These are weak and useless gods. The idea of freedom to choose one's spiritual path is nonsense. It confuses us into believing that our most important choices are between good, better and best on that special randomly determined scale. Not between right and wrong. When we forget that there are only two choices, then we are headed away from God. And that means to hell. This way of thinking has become so normal to all of us that we might not even be conscious that there is any problem with it. But I ask you, when you check yourselves on this matter, what do you really believe? Are you certain? Do you know without doubt that there is only one God, that there is only one way to salvation, one choice between right and wrong? Or has a tiny little part of you started to think that maybe those whispers about different paths are true? and that that way looks so much easier and more attractive. Satan's attacks are subtle. He doesn't come at us directly with signs accompanying so that we can hold up our crosses and bellow, Be gone, Satan, in Jesus' name! No. He sidles up and he whispers in our ears. He draws us away gently. I'm not particularly skilled at fishing, but I do know that kingfish, that's a big fish, isn't it? Kingfish, who are large and powerful adversaries, prefer to live near reefs and rocky outcrops. When hooked, they will typically head straight for those obstacles and where the line will be cut off and they can swim free. So when you hook up to one of these fish, you have two choices. Either use the biggest and strongest fishing rod you can, and hang on and hope for the best. Well, there is a more subtle way, a more successful way, actually. Start the boat and slowly, gently, lead that fish quietly away from the obstacle. And there, unprotected, you can subdue and ultimately consume him. This is what Satan can do to us if we don't stay constantly on our guard and check our beliefs against scripture. We shouldn't allow ourselves or our brothers and sisters to be fooled like those fish. We should check ourselves and our surroundings. Are we where we should be, dwelling in the palm of God, or have we been cleverly enticed away? So we must be constantly checking what seems to be perfectly obvious and simple truths to see what they really look like in the light of God's word, and then asking ourselves how we are engaging with them. 
So far, we've been standing back a bit and looking at one of the big pictures of this passage. Let's zoom in now for some more specific inspection where we will find an even bigger picture. If we look back, we are reminded that Paul has been writing at length about unity. It's obvious then that he hasn't changed subject at all in today's passage. In fact, verses, in verses 4 to 6, he lists no less than seven reasons for the existence of Christian unity. Thus, we have this union because there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. To begin with, the word one that we see used repeatedly here describes a body that is united rather than made up of different points. Now, just try to imagine you had a bird's eye view of Auckland during the World Cup. If you looked at all the various people that who were there for that event and they were scurrying around, you could reasonably claim that they were one group of rugby fanatics. Yes? The trouble is that although they were there for essentially the same reason and can share that one description, when it comes to loyalty, well, it's a completely different matter, isn't it? Now think about that sea of black jerseys at the final. Do you think they were united? I believe so. Passionately. And that's the sense of the one that is used here. Let's try to hold that picture in our heads as we go on. When Paul speaks about one body, he is speaking about the body of the church. Now, when I had a look in the Wanganui Yellow Pages for churches and religious organizations, I counted no less than 15 different Christian churches. Does that mean that there are 15 different bodies just here in Wanganui? No, provided that these different expressions of Christianity give witness that Jesus is Lord and Saviour, then they are all parts of the same body. And wonderfully, this is true for the whole world. It doesn't matter what language we speak, what colour our skin is, what our social status is, or which one of the many ways we choose to differentiate humans is used. In Christ, we are all one body. This is important in lots of ways. Firstly, it is a picture of what God himself is like that perfect unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Secondly, it's a caution for us not to be proud or separatist about our particular brand of Christianity. How can one finger possibly be more proud than another finger on the same hand? Thirdly, it is intended to be a witness to the world of of how God dwelling in us makes us different to those living with sin. John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We're not very good at this a lot of the time, are we? So what are we going to do about it? You know what I'm going to say next, don't you? Go away. And love one another. That's easy as. I've filled some space in the sermon, and you've heard a deep spiritual truth. We're all happy. But did we really hear that scripture? A new commandment. Jesus Christ, 
the Son of God gave us a commandment. If we really hear that, then we shouldn't be wasting any time acting on it, should we? And by acting, I don't mean false displays that are intended to give the impression of something that isn't truly there, but real life acts of love, gracious behavior, forgiveness, kindness, patience, and all those great things. We do know what to do because it is simply what we would like others to do for us. So go away and love one another as parts of the same body. And remember that this holds true for our brothers and sisters from the church up the road as well. Why is there one body? Well, there is one body because every part is enabled by one spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself. We were all universally awakened by him, enlightened by him, convicted by him and converted by him. There is nothing that we can boast of as our own, only shame in our common sin. The Spirit has given every believer exactly the same treatment and continues to live inside every believer to help and sustain us. Look around you. Who do you see that you know? Who do you see that you don't know? Now look with new eyes and see that you share the same spirit with all of those people. What a good reason to love one another. And of course, again, I'm not just talking about the people inside this building. We are called in one hope of our calling. When you look at this phrase with the world's definition of hope in mind, it really doesn't look very promising. I hope God has called me. I'd really like it if he had. Our modern understanding of hope is a feeling of desire for something and confidence in the possibility of its fulfillment. It's possible that I will get this thing or the other, but then again I won't be awfully surprised if I don't. However, if we just remove that word possibility from the worldly definition, then we have an understanding of what hope means in the Bible. A feeling of desire for something and confidence for its fulfillment. I have been promised this and I am utterly confident that I will get it. The reason for this utter confidence for the future, the security of true hope, is because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. My sins are forgiven and my relationship with God is fully restored. I don't need any other hope than that. That is why I only need one hope. This single hope is another reason for our unity. All Christians are looking forward to the same heaven and the same state of happiness and fulfillment that is promised there. On earth, people hope for different things. Honor, power, wealth. And because they generally gain them at others' expense, they tend to bring division and rivalry. Heaven and its joys are inexhaustible. We have no reason to fear that someone else will get our share or a better share than us because heaven's portion is not the kind that will leave us looking for more. Why should Christians deal with each other in a competitive manner when we know that the same destination and reward awaits every single person who takes Christ as their Lord and Saviour? 
we have one hope of our calling. That word calling is actually the same one that's used as an invitation to a banquet. That's a really nice picture, isn't it? We have been invited by God to enter his kingdom with all the privileges of a citizen. That's a very special event. Our calling includes all the things that God has done, is doing, and wants to do one day regarding our salvation. And I wish we had time to reflect on those because each one of them is truly magnificent and awesome. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. We have been chosen by Christ before the foundation of the world. We have been redeemed by his blood and adopted as God's children, sealed in him with his spirit, with the sure and certain hope of Christ's returning and everything that is to come for his church after his return. If those callings don't give us real hope, (laughs) I don't know what to offer you, because there is nothing in creation that is any better than just one of those. We must live in unity because we have one Lord. There isn't one for us Baptists here, and then another one for the Catholics up the road. Our Lord is one and the same, Jesus Christ. And the same holds true for the person in the pew next to you, as well as that fellow over on the other side of the church whose name escapes you right now. What's your name again? Ah. No matter what divides us at the personal and institutional level, we are connected at the spiritual level in a way that cannot be broken. In the light of that knowledge, we should be asking ourselves why we might be squabbling in those other spaces. The word used for Lord signifies both sovereign power and absolute authority. If we have any doubts about who is really in charge, well, they must end here with Jesus. He is our Lord. He decides how things should be. He ought to know because he was part of their creation and they continue to exist only because of his involvement in them. Our petty disputes cannot affect his lordship one bit. They will not add to it or subtract from it at all. So we may think that taking a particular stand is for our Lord and it may well be, but we should be very sure that that is really the case because it's often our own interests that lie at the heart of these things. Now we may think that we're all pretty good at seeing through that act, that being the case. What does it say about the genuineness of our faith? When we say on one side of our faces that Jesus is Lord, and then on the other side we try to win whichever argument we're in, just really to puff ourselves up. Is Jesus our Lord, or is our own ego our Lord? Is it more important to win? than whether the cause is right or wrong. Sadly, the loss is doubly disgraceful. Firstly, and worst, there is a loss of reputation for Christ. And then secondly, there is a personal loss to our own integrity and spiritual development. We should pray that the next time we are in this position, the Holy Spirit will prompt us to remember that we do have one Lord, and act only for his glory and not for our own.
Let's be very, very clear. This truth of one Lord lies at the very center of the sevenfold unity. Everything points to him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We live in him and by him and through him. He is the fulfillment of the Father's eternal purpose. And all of the power of the mighty Holy Spirit supports him. Indeed, Jesus' Lordship stands at the very entrance to our salvation. We may not pass that door without acknowledging it. Romans 10 If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Do you see the same message of unity there in Jesus as Lord? Never forget his Lordship. We must live in unity because we share one faith. Faith means trust or belief and is the conviction of the truth of anything. Paul uses this term in two ways, either as faith or the faith. And the first one speaks about our own personal experience of faith and salvation. And we've read about that not long ago in verse 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So this refers to our own internal trust and belief in Jesus. Then there is the faith, which is that body of knowledge in the New Testament that reveals the divine standard of truth that is to be believed by all Christians. It seems reasonable to understand that when Paul speaks about us sharing one faith, he is including both of those possibilities. Does this mean then that all Christians must share the same doctrine to the last dot on the I? No, it doesn't. And if you think about that, it can't ever be possible because of the dim way we are able to understand God's mysteries through limited human senses and intellect. The truth is that we will always have some differences of understanding. And that understanding, I must add, should be the result of both hearing the word as it is preached and through careful and diligent personal study. Now there are two spaces in which we shouldn't differ. Firstly, as faith relates to God, it is the conviction that God exists. He created everything and rules over everything. He is the one who has provided the opportunity for eternal salvation through Christ. Secondly, as faith relates to Jesus, it represents the absolute conviction that he is the Messiah, through him, whom, and only through whom we can obtain eternal salvation and entrance into the kingdom of heaven. These are lines in the sand that we should not cross. That said, they are never an excuse for violence of any sort. We must live in unity because we share one baptism. That's very easy because we're Baptists here, so if we're dipped, we're all okay, right? Hmm. 
We must be the real Christians, and those fellows out there who merely sprinkle or don't bother at all are seriously mistaken. No, that's wrong thinking. The ceremonial act of baptism is an important public statement about a profound inner spiritual change of status, from condemned to redeemed. It is a worthy and obedient thing to do, providing that we understand that on its own it counts for nothing in heaven. Anybody who turns up in heaven and says, Let me in! I've been baptized! Well, they're in for a very serious disappointment. Salvation comes only through Christ. And we can take a similar view about some of the Pentecostal beliefs about baptism in the Spirit as a separate event from salvation. There is something far more profound than any earthly ceremony going on here. The Greek word used for baptism here is baptisma. And there are two interesting things about that. Firstly, the ma ending shows that this state is the result of the action. Its root word, which is the action, means to cover wholly with a fluid, stain or dip as with dye. I really like that picture of our dye. Our new state of being is the result of being dipped by the Holy Spirit into Christ. We have a new spiritual color throughout us, if you like, and that is clean and white as distinct to the previous red stain of our sins. Remember too that the picture is about being covered, not coming out. We remain in Christ, covered by Him. And this is a wonderful picture of the new intimacy of our reconciliation with God. We haven't just been cleaned up and stashed somewhere, but we have become part of him. This is the one baptism that Paul is speaking about. All genuine believers have shared in this spiritual dipping. All are in Christ. This is union of the very highest sort. Finally, we should live in unity because we share one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. We've already spoken about there being one God at the beginning of the sermon, and how that removes any possibility of confusion. However, Paul has added this marvelous term, Father, to the mix. For many of the world's religions, there are gods, or a God and us. We are terminally separate. They exist outside and above humanity, pursue their own ends, and it's largely a one-sided arrangement. Humans are just expected to tag along. Christians, on the other hand, have a father in heaven. We are a family. That very radically alters things, doesn't it? Most of us have good friends, maybe friends that we've had for decades. But no matter how close we are to them, we still have a relationship that is inferior to the ones that we have with family. You and I are members of the spiritual family under our Heavenly Father. And this binds us together in a very, very special way. Surely it would be foolish and unproductive to live as though we didn't enjoy this familial bond of unity. Paul also wanted us to know 
that there is no possibility of one Christian claiming that they have a better father than any other. Our father cannot be bettered because he is above all. This is an expression of a sovereignty. He isn't dependent on anything or anyone. He is the supreme authority and all things are under the rule of that authority. And the most beautiful thing is that despite this matchless power, he doesn't choose to stand apart from his creation, but he is through all and in all. I love raisins, particularly when they are combined with chocolate. They have a characteristic that always delights me. Every bit of them has that same tangy raisin taste, even the tiniest bit you can find. You know, sometimes after you've had some of that rum and raisin chocolate and you're kind of running your tongue around and you find a new piece of raisin, You might expect that some parts might be more tasty than others, or that the flavour would somehow get less the longer it is in your mouth. But no, even the smallest, tiniest pieces have that same wonderful taste. Taste and see that God is good too. Like the taste of those raisins, he is equally present throughout every part of the universe. Suns, planets, trees, oceans, and people too. He holds it together at all times and works to his plan and will achieve his purposes. We live in the unity of God's perfectly equal presence in each one of us. Friends, this passage has shown us that right in our face there is a gigantic pile of what we have in common with all other Christians. Over to one side is a pitiful little pinch of the things that we have been squabbling over. What should we focus on? The pile or the pinch? As we leave here today, let's determine to live in unity not just with the people around us in this church, but also the churches around us who faithfully profess Christ as Lord. We have all started in the unity of sin and failure. But through the merciful grace of God, we will end in the unity of righteousness and triumph over evil. Let us pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of this great truth. Lord, it's so exciting to get that feeling of belonging. Lord, that wherever we, we might go in this world, we might, another, we might meet another Christian, that we are family. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus who made that possible. I pray, Lord, that we might live in such a way that it would show to the world the power of that family and that that might become something they would want. They would turn and come to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.